Austin, Texas. You're listening to the Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast. Here's your host, Sheila Dean. Good afternoon, this is Sheila Dean. I'm here with you on 100 Days of Colin, Day 19. It is awesome. We're past the 20-day hump. We're into the home stretch of 100 Days of Colin. I cannot wait to complete this journey and hurdle. Um, thank you for joining us. So it has turned out to be quite a red letter day. Um, we have a lot of participation now on Twitter that is high uh, because Elon Musk finally bought it. Elon Musk finally made the purchase. He walked into Twitter and now he's doing what he's doing. We'll see. We'll see what it yields. I've spent um, several hours on Twitter today, just enjoying my my perceived version of freedom, and since that's happened, it's been mostly untumultuous, uh, and, and, you know, freedom of speech has been uninterred or deliverable, but the moment I tried to respond to somebody, let's have a look down here, okay, I posted some very anti-she things, um, and then there was an a guy I was going to retweet saying the things that he had said was fair and then they didn't want me to post that for some reason and I wasn't allowed to say it was fair so so that was that was an interesting one for me I think that you know Twitter's got got quite a ways to go um what I used it for today was to talk about Julian Assange and I used it to promote some of the things that Edward Snowden had said and I posted a link on Edward Snowden's feed about this program because he tweeted today that you are holding Julian Assange in a dungeon for exercising the freedom of expression you so ardently claim to defend. And this is to the State Department spokesman. So how about decriminalizing it at home before you take to a podium and point your finger abroad? And uh, the quote he was alluding to was to, we've made consistently clear to Saudi authorities that freedom of expression should never be criminalized. The exercise of the universal right like freedom of expression should never be criminalized. Yet, we are so witness to some of the, the manipulative things that they have done during the pandemic and even now. And of course, people were, were saying terrible things to Edward Snowden, saying, but you're in Russia, 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 Russia. And so he also said, it's not the jab you think it is since otherwise I'd be muzzled in a dungeon right now, right next to Assange. So what does it say about our system if a whistleblower opposed to Washington can walk free in Russia but not the U.S. or EU? You don't like it? Then fix it. And, of course, you know the State Department is a, is a foreign-directed agency. I don't think they're going to fix anything. But I'll tell you who will fix it in certain terms because I think that there's always a private option and a public option. Now... It is a privately owned company, this Twitter now is a privately owned company. Because it is a privately owned company, 
now by one Elon Musk, he can say to his employees, especially the ones that were outed by Mudge Zatko, the ones who were outed as spies, you're fired and we are going to the State Department to you know, tell them you're no longer employed with us, so please cancel your visa, your work visa. So there is an Indian spy and a Chinese spy in the, under the umbrella hood at Twitter. I don't know what happened to them. I don't know if they were fired, but I did ask at 6 o'clock in the morning. I was so lit that I the first thing I did after I woke up was I asked Elon Musk to please go fire those two people if they're not gone yet and to report them to law enforcement if they're not gone yet. They shouldn't be here in the country, much, much less earning a paycheck at Twitter. But because of the way things have been going, I think that they would still have their job and even be going to lunch together. So I, I have expressed my concerns fully. I did it. I used it on Twitter to do so. And uh, so I believe it will be a new day. Also, Senator Josh Hawley has... Uh, penned a sanctions bill to Xi Jinping, which means that would point to the whole of China for some of the things that have been done to the Uyghurs in genocide. And uh, since Mike Lee is, is in such a need to be in power at this time, I asked him to try to sign on to that bill as repentance for getting a bill in place and having it signed so that China could go buy land here in the United States. And so that that's really important. That's a really important development. Now I have the power to go onto Twitter. Not that I really didn't have it before, but I, I think it's more po potent uh, that I have the power to go on Twitter and ask my lay pressure on my senators or the senators that are trying to get reelected with Texas money and Texas support and asking people like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz and John Cornyn to go lean on Mike Lee because he was pro-China at some point and try to get them to put pressure on him like, do, do you want to be in power? Do, do you need to be employed in the U.S. Senate? Okay. Okay. Time to come on and be against a bad Chinese regime that's taken over America subliminally. Okay, don't don't be a part of it. And then get rid of these BRICS people. Rishi Sunak has, has you know, he's been installed as BRICS software. You know, he's already had his meeting today with Justin Trudeau. So trustworthy. No, it's not. And, you know, he's a World Economic Forum guy. So I, I have informed as many people as I can using my little Twitter powers to say, hey, listen, you know, you can walk and chew gum at the same time. If you want to go fight climate change, you know, if you're underneath the thumb of a social credit scoring system that bans free speech, you're not going to be able to do that, uh, Irish. So, so come on. Come on, let's read this. So we're going to go directly to... text. We are now reading The Trial of Julian Assange, A Story of Persecution, Chapter 8. We'll be resuming from the NSA scandal and the DNC leaks. Invite, invite all the people. Come on, people. 
NSA scandal and DNC leaks. Even during Assange asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy, WikiLeaks continued to work, publishing a wide range of leaked material, not only from Western governments, intelligence agencies, and corporations, but also from countries such as Russia, Syria, Angola, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. It was also during this time that the NSA scandal erupted. In 2013, Edward Snowden, an employee of the U.S. National Security Agency, the NSA, made the headlines with explosive revelations about global surveillance programs operated by U.S. intelligence agencies, many in cooperation with British, Australian, Canadian, and European partner agencies. For the first time, the world learned about the enormous scale and reach of state-sponsored internet and smartphone surveillance which involved clandestine access to hundreds of millions of private email accounts and smartphones and large financial incentives for cooperative technology companies. This was PRISM. Snowden did not seek whistleblower anonymity but affirmed the authenticity of the material by disclosing his identity. That made him a target. The United States accused him of espionage. Assange, sorry. Assange and WikiLeaks assisted Snowden's escape via Hong Kong to Moscow and helped with exploring options for political asylum in various countries. Bolivia, Ecuador, Venezuela, and Iceland were reportedly considered, but Snowden remained in Moscow, where he was granted asylum in August of 2013 and permanent residence in October of 2020. In the film WikiLeaks, Die USA gegen Julian Assange, boy, WikiLeaks, the USA versus Julian Assange, aired by German public broadcaster ARD in 2020. 2020, sorry. Edward Snowden drew parallels between his own case and that of Assange, but at the same time emphasized an important distinction. Quote, I was the only one who actually gathered this material. I'm an American. I had a contract with the government. And yet, in the case of Julian Assange, he did not gather any material himself. He received it and then merely published it. He signed no contracts. He was not an American. He is by far the weaker case in terms of what the government has against us, and yet Assange receives less support in terms of opposition to the charges against him. End quote. The distinction between unlawfully gathering confidential information and publishing it in a journalistic manner is of critical importance with regard to Assange's work with WikiLeaks. It also applies to the so-called DNC leaks. In 2016, in the middle of the U.S. presidential election, WikiLeaks published around 20,000 internal emails of key staff of the Democratic National Committee, as well as of Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, John Podesta. The publication occurred immediately before Democratic Party convention in Philadelphia, at which Clinton was to be nominated at the party's presidential candidate. The published correspondence provided evidence of strong bias within the committee against Clinton's strongest competitor, Bernie Sanders. Apparently, Sanders' nomination was to be prevented at all costs, including the deliberate and through deliberate defamation. As a consequence, the DNC chair, Debbie Wasserman Schultz, was forced to resign. The second leak occurred on 6 November, only two days before the presidential election, in which Clinton ended up winning the popular vote but losing the electoral college to the Republican candidate Donald Trump. No other publication has cost Assange as much goodwill in the United States as the DNC leaks. The American liberal establishment 
including many political figures, business leaders, Hollywood stars, and other celebrities, struggled to come to terms with this defeat. How could the venerable Democratic Party, with a candidate as prominent as Hillary Clinton, have lost to someone like Donald Trump, widely despised as crude and self-absorbed? The truth is, of course, that all of the compromising emails had been written by Clinton, her staff, and supporters, not by Assange. And the truth is that Clinton lost the election because of her own conduct and that of the Democratic Party, not that of Assange. The truth is that any democratic election process exposing the dirty secrets of political candidates is an indispensable function of journalists. The truth is that even political celebrities such as Hillary Clinton are not entitled to electoral victory but to have to earn it themselves. And the hardest truth is that it was not WikiLeaks that gave Donald Trump the presidency, but the American people in an American election based on American constitutions. All of these truths rose to the surface of public consciousness, but were too painful to face, and therefore were immediately suppressed back into subconscious. The German poet Christian Morgenstern famously said, What cannot be, must not be. A scapegoat was urgently needed, and so Assange was accused of having manipulated the 2016 elections, prevented Hillary Clinton from becoming president, and helped Donald Trump into office. But even a scapegoat could not divert public attention forever from the long-standing misconduct that was most likely the cause for the colossal loss of confidence suffered by both established parties with the American people. What was needed was an external enemy. Sure enough, the mainstream press soon started disseminating the U.S. intelligence agency's favorite narrative of Russian hacking. Within days, the Democratic Party accused the Russian Federation of stealing the emails and joining forces with Trump. Assange and WikiLeaks to manipulate the election. In 2018, the party filed a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York against all of the above, but Judge John Codal's ruling, handed down on 31 July 2019, did not turn out as expected by the Democrats. Codal did not have the question, sorry, did not have to question the Russia's responsibility for the data theft, but simply explained that due to the principles of sovereign immunity, the Russian Federation could not be sued in the courts of the United States for governmental actions. More importantly, the claims against Donald Trump, his campaign team, WikiLeaks, and Assange were also dismissed, this time based on the First Amendment of the United States Constitution. Presumably, to the dismay of the entire political establishment on both sides of the aisle, Kettle described Assange as a journalist and considered the publications of WikiLeaks protected as a matter of press freedom. The judge stressed that there is a significant legal distinction between stealing documents and disclosing documents that someone else had stolen previously. More specifically, he argued the First Amendment precluded the liability of those who publish materials of public interest despite defects in the way a lawsuit in the Southern District of New York against all of the above. But Judge John Cuddle's ruling, handed down on 31 July 2019, did not turn out as expected by the Democrats. Next page. The materials were obtained so long as the disseminator did not participate in any wrongdoing in obtaining the materials in the first place. Importantly, for Assange, Kettle then went on to dismiss the conspiracy rationale. The DNC's argument that WikiLeaks can be held liable 
for the theft as an after-the-fact co-conspirator of the stolen documents is also an unpersuasive. Such as rule would render any journalist who publishes an article based on stolen information a co-conspirator in the theft. Therefore, Kettle concluded journalists are, are allowed to request documents that have been stolen and to publish those documents. The DNC's lawsuit had backfired spectacularly and inadvertently prompted a veritable landmark judgment of enormous value for WikiLeaks, Assange, and press freedom more generally. True to his principles, Assange never disclosed his source for the DNC leaks. On 15 August 2017, an ex-U.S. Congressman Dana Rohrbacher and his assistant Charles Johnson visited Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy in London in order to, pro to propose sorry, a deal. According to Assange's lawyer, Jennifer Robinson, who was present at the meeting, the visitors made it understood that they were acting with the knowledge and consent of a President Trump and that their aim was to explore a possible win-win deal that would allow Assange to leave the embassy without fear of U.S. protection. Oh, sorry, U.S. prosecution. Excuse me. At the time, President Trump was being investigated by special counsel Robert Mueller on allegations that he had committed treason by conspiring with Russian agents in the DNC leaks. The proposed deal was that if Assange were to disclose his real source for the DNC leaks, disproving the allegation that the emails had been provided by Russian hackers, Rohrbacher would lobby Trump for a presidential pardon on the espionage charges against Assange. Hmm. Assange declined, and Washington's wrath was not long in coming. On 21 December 2017, U.S. government transmitted a diplomatic note to London requesting Assange's provisional arrest. On 6 March of 2018, a secret grand jury in the United States filed a sealed indictment against him, and within three weeks, Assange's living conditions in the Ecuadorian embassy began to deteriorate drastically. It was the beginning of the end of Assange's diplomatic asylum, made possible by an absolutely decisive event that had taken place 10 months earlier, the change of leadership in Quito. A new government in Ecuador. In May 2017, Lenin Moreno replaced Rafael Correa as president of Ecuador. The Ecuadorian people had believed that the election of former president Moreno would ensure the continuation of Correa's progressive policies. They were in for a shock. This was not going to be a simple transfer of power between politicians of the same tradition. Within a few months of taking office, the Moreno government bowed to economic and political pressure and performed a neoliberal U-turn, putting the normalization of the country's relations with the United States at the very top of the agenda. Suddenly, Assange's asylum at the Ecuadorian embassy became an obstacle to the path of U.S.-Ecuadorian reapproachment. Various options were explored. As the New York Times revealed in December 2018, President-elect Moreno received a visit from President Trump's former campaign manager, Paul Manafort, as early as mid-May of 2017. Moreno seized the opportunity to offer Manafort's Assange rendition to the United States in exchange for financial concessions, including debt relief. But Manafort became a primary target of the special counsel's Mueller's Russiagate investigation which ended his role as a middleman. In the following months, Moreno then apparently tried to get rid of Assange by first giving him Ecuadorian citizenship in 20, December of 2017 and then appointing him ambassador of Ecuador to Moscow. 
but the British authorities made clear that they did not recognize Assange's diplomatic immunity and would arrest him as soon as he were able to leave the embassy. Three months later followed the secret U.S. indictment on 6 March of 2018, and in late June, U.S. Vice President Mike Pence visited Ecuador to hold construction discussions with Moreno about Assange. The precise content of these talks was kept Narvaez, Consul General of the Ecuadorian Embassy in London until the summer of 2018 provides a sober, unexcited, yet largely positive evaluation of Assange's first year of asylum. According to Narvaez, the situation was obviously not easy, neither for the embassy staff nor for Assange, but everyone did their best to adapt. Of course, wherever people have to live together in a confined space, there will be occasional situations of stress, he said. Additionally, there was the constant police surveillance, media attention, political pressure, outside visitors, logistical difficulties in security, food, hygiene, and medical care, and the indefinite duration of Assange's presence inside the offices of the embassy, which were not designated for that purpose. They weren't designed that way. In view of all these challenges, the formal consul found it remarkable that overall the coexistence of the embassy staff with Assange had been marked by friendliness and mutual respect for five years. There was a brief exception in October 2016 when the Ecuadorian government temporarily suspended Assange's access to the Internet during the U.S. presidential election in order to mitigate political tensions caused by the DNC leaks, while at the same time reaffirming Ecuador's commitment to shield Assange until his life and integrity could otherwise be secured. In view of Ecuador's military and economic vulnerability, the country deserves to be saluted for its decision to stand up to international pressure and protect Assange from extradition to the United States. In this respect, then, the Ecuadorian leadership showed exemplary courage and commitment to fundamental principles of international law, including the universal prohibition of torture and the principle of non-refoulement. Assange's everyday life at the embassy, which remained largely unproblematic until 2017, was certainly facilitated by a character trait of his which, for lack of a better word, could be called resilience. This man was not accustomed to luxury. For years he had lived out of a suitcase and slept wherever a couch was on to offer. The internet was working, and people were willing to support WikiLeaks. In addition, Assange seemed to be strongly focused on his own work, his own person, his own thoughts, keeping the external world emotionally at an arm's length. This ability of his is likely to have helped Assange to get through the first few years of his embassy asylum reasonably unscathed, despite the lack of sunlight, despite the uncertainty of his situation, and despite the constant threat of a looming extradition to the United States, knowing that his entire future depended on the decisions of others. The refuge becomes a trap. The change of power in Ecuador is another turning point in the story of Assange's persecution. It takes a few months for the fallout of this event to reach the Ecuadorian embassy in London, but when it does, Assange's daily life changes drastically. One by one, repeatedly Assange-friendly employees are removed and replaced by others who are willing to implement President Moreno's new policies without criticism. On 8 January 2019, the British minister, Alan Duncan, notes in his diary, Meet the new Ecuador ambassador, Jaime Marchand Romero. 
His principal mission is to get Assange out of the embassy. It has been six years, and although he had been aiming for tomorrow, as I just learned, it's going to take longer. A tad frustrating, but we'll get there. Fidel Narvaez was dismissed in the summer of 2018 after eight years of service, late enough to be able to give firsthand information about the increasingly difficult living conditions for Assange in the embassy. The purpose of the instructions received from Quito was clear, to get rid of Assange. To that end, a double strategy was reportedly pursued. Ideally, Assange could be motivated to voluntarily leave the embassy simply by subjecting him to an increasingly restrictive, hostile, and arbitrary environment. Alternatively, the intensity of his suffering would be increased to the point where it might trigger a medical crisis and necessitating his transfer to a London hospital, where he could be arrested by British police. It was clear that the envisaged escalation would not materialize overnight, and given Assange's strong resilience, the strategy might not succeed at all. In that case, Assange's expulsion would become the only way to end his presence at the embassy, and so the Ecuadorian government started to look for reasons that could be used to publicly justify... Whoops. Power dip. Excuse me. For just a momentary technical pause. Started to look for reasons that could be used to publicly justify the termination of his asylum. As of 28 March 2018, Ecuador begins to increasingly isolate Assange from the outside world. His internet and telephone access are blocked indefinitely, including through the installation of jammers. This has been pointing out, sorry, pointed out the timing of the measure is hardly a coincidence. It comes less than three weeks after Assange's secret indictment by the U.S. Department of Justice, a move that the U.S. government has deliberately avoided for eight years. Also, from 28 March to 31 October 2018, Assange's right to receive private visitors is severely restricted, with sole exception of meetings with lawyers and doctors. During the entire period, no more than six private visits have been registered, less than one per month. Moreover, from now on, those visitors who are allowed into the embassy will be denied access to Assange's private rooms. Meetings are now only permitted in a conference room that is monitored through surveillance cameras and hidden microphones. This includes not only meetings with lawyers, politicians or journalists, but also medical examinations and sessions with psychotherapists. Meanwhile, embassy staff and security personnel are instructed to meticulously record anything that can be used against Assange. In the absence of any serious misconduct, they return to examining Assange's daily routine under the microscope and painstakingly document such details, such as the feeding times of his cat, the cleanliness of the toilet, and any unwashed dishes in the kitchen sink. On 14 October 2018, Minister Duncan notes in his diary, the BBC report that Assange's internet connection has been restored in the Ecuador embassy. The embassy have as good as laid a trap for him. If he misuses it, then, as he probably will, then they will chuck him out. Let's see. Indeed, in October 2018, some of the previous restrictions are partially relaxed and replaced by a special protocol of visits, communications, and medical attention for Mr. Paul, Julian Paul Assange. The protocol makes it nearly impossible for Assange to not violate the rules governing his asylum. According to Narvaez, the purpose of the protocol is to 
lay out banana peels all over the floor, making sure that Assange will repeatedly slip and thus supply excuses for his expulsion by the Ecuadorian government. I wonder what that tactic is called. Sabotage. In particular, the procedure for admitting outside visitors has become more complicated. In some cases, two weeks pass before the necessary permission is granted. Each visit must be justified in writing with accurate information about the purpose of the visit. The visitor's current employment situation and any electronic devices likely to be carried. All visitors must surrender their personal mobile phones while inside the embassy. The same tendency towards arbitrary overregulation can be seen where the protocol addresses medical care, communication devices, and hygiene. The protocol draws so many lines in the sand that their transgression becomes virtually inevitable. This is the whole point, of course, and so the six-page document concludes with almost gleeful anticipation, failure to comply with the obligations contained in this special protocol by the asylee may result in the termination of diplomatic asylum conceded by the Ecuadorian state in accordance with the relevant international instruments. The Ecuadorian state reserves itself the right to accept or reject the explanations that Mr. Assange may give in writing regarding the breach of the obligations of this protocol. In other words, it is made crystal clear that any justification or objection Assange may wish to raise in defense of his right to asylum and the prohibition of non-refoulement will not be considered in a due process proceeding based on the rule of law, but will depend entirely on the whim of the government. Laying down the rules that establish a relationship of unilateral dominance to total dependence and unpredictable arbitrariness is a typical feature in the creation of any torturous environment. More specifically, isolating a person from the outside world and positive social contacts and over-regulating their daily life with complex, meaningless, and arbitrarily interpreted instructions, prohibitions, and procedures are two likely elements routinely used by torturers around the world to undermine the orientation, self-confidence, and resilience of their victims. But Assange's abuse does not end there. Permanent Surveillance Already in 2017, surveillance measures inside the embassy are strengthened. The control room in the entrance area where the security personnel and surveillance monitors are located disappears behind the opaque, one-way spyglass. For Assange and his visitors, it is no longer possible to see whether and by whom they are being observed. The existing cameras inside the embassy are replaced by newer, high-resolution models. Officially, they do not provide audio recordings. Officially, Assange's private rooms are also exempt for surveillance. But Assange remains suspicious. He shields documents with his hand while reading them or drafting them. He tries to project the confidentiality of his meetings in the conference room by playing loud music on the radio, switching on his own jamming devices covering documents and blinding cameras with bright lights. For the discussion of sensitive legal matters, Assange takes his lawyers to the ladies' room and turns on the water to generate background noise. While all of this may look like paranoia, it is really well founded. In fact, as will be shown, Assange's surveillance at the embassy is even more systematic and comprehensive than he imagines. Everything is recorded, documented, spied, spied upon. Medical examinations, strategy meetings with lawyers, meetings with private visitors, 
Security personnel are as interested in his state of health and his sleep patterns as they are is in his personal notes or the SIM cards in his visitors' mobile phones. Private documents disappear. Medical notes are stolen. Phones are opened. Microphones are found in the fire extinguisher and in the conference room, in electrical outlets, and yes, even in the ladies' room. This is some Stasi stuff. Ooh, I do remember seeing a tweet about his private documents being, you know, confiscated. They just disappeared. This was years ago. Assange's son, Gabriel, who was born in the spring of 2017, arouses particular interest. Stella Morris and Assange have done their utmost to keep the relationship secret. Assange learns that he will become a father from a note that Morris slips to him during one of her visits. After Gabriel's birth, it will never be her who brings the infant to the embassy, but a friend who passes him off as his own. As described above, in April 2017, Assange had entrusted his delicate family situation to the Swedish authorities in the hope of finding a mutual arrangement that would have allowed him to be present at Gabriel's birth. These were, of course, the same Swedish authorities that had repeatedly demonstrated a complete lack of respect for Assange's right to privacy and that the U.S. Embassy in Stockholm had described as reliable partners in military and civilian intelligence cooperation. Unsurprisingly, therefore, the security personnel at the Ecuadorian Embassy soon became suspicious and stole one of Gabriel's nappies to conduct a DNA test. In 2020, German public broadcaster ARD interviews Leon Panetta, a CIA retech director from 2009 to 2011 and then U.S. Defense Secretary until 2013 for the above-mentioned film. Confronted with the alleged surveillance of Assange at the Ecuadorian Embassy, Panetta is genuinely amused. It doesn't surprise me. I mean, that kind of thing goes on all the time. The intelligence business, you know, the name of the game is to get, it, get the information any way you can, and I'm sure that that's what was involved here. At the same time, Panetta condemns Assange and WikiLeaks for what he describes as a pretty huge breach of classified information and opines that he should be punished and face trial in order to send a message to others to not do the same thing. Unlike the CIA, however, WikiLeaks does not obtain any of its information through unlawful methods. No wiretapping, no data theft, no hacking, and certainly no torture. Nonetheless, Panetta sees no contradiction in demanding the prosecution of Assange for investigative journalism, while simultaneously tolerating the impunity for state-sponsored crimes committed by intelligence agencies. Panetta's genuine amusement and almost naive frankness with which he acknowledges the CIA's lawlessness are disarmingly honest. Quite evidently, he is already so accustomed to institutionalized criminality and he no longer even perceives it as problematic, a widespread phenomenon among the powerful and privileged out of this world. A key actor directly responsible for the surveillance measures at the Ecuadorian embassy is a Spanish private security company, UC Global. In 2015, it was contracted to guarantee the security of the embassy's premises and staff. Reportedly, due to personal contacts with the family of the Ecuadorian president, Rafael Correa. 
The owner of UC Global is David Morales, a former Spanish Marine. He is behind the massive expansion of Assange's surveillance. Every day, he personally reviews the material collected by his staff at the embassy. Often, these reports reach him in the United States. Morales' trips to America have become more frequent since he participated in a security trade fair in Las Vegas of 2016. He receives contracts from a casino empire that is reported to maintain close links with U.S. intelligence services. After his first return from Las Vegas, Morales reportedly makes cryptic remarks to his staff to the effect that we are playing in the big leagues and that he had switched to the dark side and now worked for the, their American friends. Did Morales commit the cardinal sin of any security contractor and turn against the interest of his client? Did he take advantage of his position to monitor Assange and then hand the data over to American intelligence agencies? Was he a double agent? A criminal trial before the National Court of Justice in Spain aims to shed light on this affair. Assange and his lawyers accuse Morales and UC Global of illegal surveillance and, among other things, violating the confidential attorney-client relationship. Apparently, employees of the company have even attempted to blackmail Assange for large sums of money by threatening to publish the material showing him in intimate situations. German journalists of the Nord Nordischer Rundfunk NDR, have also filed criminal reports against UC Global for transgressions against privacy and confidentiality during their visits to Assange at the Ecuadorian Embassy. The Ecuadorian government, now headed by Lenin Moreno, terminates a contract with UC Global in 2018 and hires an Ecuadorian security company by the name of Prom, Prom Security. Okay, I got it. Now, this does not put an end to Assange's surveillance. Most notably, his meetings with lawyers continue to be recorded and in one case, even the documents brought to the embassy by a lawyer are secretly photographed. In its official responses to my interventions, the Ecuadorian government has always denied spying on Assange. For example, 26 July 2019, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs wrote, there was no excessive regulation and no recording of private meetings. This denial is remarkable given that some of the resulting video recordings have been extensively shown and commented on in the mass media and continue to be accessible on online platforms such as YouTube. On 2 December 2019, the Ecuadorian government followed up with, do not forget that the security cameras inside the embassy were not installed to record Mr. Assange but to monitor the premises of the mission and to protect all those inside, including diplomatic officials. This, ra this rationale presumably also applies to the microphones in the ladies' room. Further, Mr. Assange and his lawyers and associates made threats and insulting accusations against the Ecuadorian state and its officials in the United Kingdom, accusing them without foundation of espionage of other nations. Instead, the Ecuadorian government accuses Assange of making unauthorized recordings in the embassy. On the basis of this one-eyed perception of reality, a construction, sorry, a constructive dialogue is, of course, almost impossible to achieve. From a legal perspective, the permanent surveillance of Assange's conversations with his lawyers and doctors renders any proceedings based on the information gathered in this manner irreparably arbitrary. Under these circumstances, 
the equality of the parties before the law simply can no longer be guaranteed. If UC Global cooperated with an American intelligence service, this would fatally affect not only the Anglo-American extradition proceedings, but also the espionage charges of the U.S. Department of Justice on which the extradition request is based. Quite apart from that, permanent surveillance and the associated constant violation of the right to privacy is also one of the standard components of psychological torture. The targeted person is deliberately deprived of the safe space of privacy, something essential for preserving a sense of personal autonomy, emotional stability, and identity. One-way surveillance through cameras, hidden microphones, or spyglass suppresses any possibility of human connection, thus further compounding the ensuing feelings of powerlessness, defamation, humiliation, and demonization. From at least mid-2017, Assange lives under constant observation, every detail of his daily life poured over and picked apart. And as always, the truth is in his eye of the beholder. Sorry, the truth is in the eye of the beholder. Objectively, there are good reasons to see Assange's resilience and stoic endurance as an impressive feat of resistance. But one can also choose to focus on details that make the scenario look completely different. Not everything about being human is dignified. Some aspects of our lives we prefer to keep private because they are intimate, embarrassing, or simply trivial. In the case of Julian Assange, these private aspects increasingly become a topic of public discussion, distortion, and humiliation. Ecuadorian officials and political leaders use the disgraceful tool of gossip to launch a new dirty narrative about Assange. Their tone is aggressive, their language is immoderate, and their aim is to vilify and belittle. The list of Assange's alleged misconduct is impressive. Describing in detail the purportedly unsavory, inappropriate, and disruptive features of his behavior. Rhetorically, Assange's asylum is withdrawn months before he's actually arrested by the British police. In March of 2018, after a secret U.S. indictment, Ecuadorian officials begin to intensify their slander campaign and receive zealous support from their British counterparts. On 27 March, Alan Duncan briefs the House of Commons on Assange, saying that it's about time that this miserable little worm walked out of the embassy and gave himself up to British justice. Clearly, public opinion is being groomed across international borders to perceive the impending expulsion and arrest as the logical consequence of a long process of alienation for which Assange himself and no one else is to blame. For any objective observer, the willful malice of this narrative is easy to detect. Issues that were not considered a problem for years are now suddenly being raised against Assange and cast in the most unfavorable light possible. Everything that can be used against him is exposed, inflated, and presented as evidence of misconduct that can no longer be tolerated. Some of the reproaches are plainly absurd, including claims that he skateboarded and played soccer inside the embassy. We immediately picture Assange as a rowdy teenager, wearing his baseball cap backwards, kicking penalties in the ambassador's office, and turning the conference room into a half-pipe. The truth is less jolly. In fact, during our medical examination, we found that Assange showed symptoms akin to those of other long-term detainees. Due to the lack of exercise and recreation, their fine motor skills, sense of balance, and physical coordination are insufficiently stimulated, leading to a regressive overall picture. 
In fact, Assange's health had already deteriorated to the point where he would have been physically incapable of the escapades he was accused of by the Ecuadorian government. A surveillance video in which he is seen stepping onto a skateboard is still circulating online, platforms such as YouTube. As can be clearly seen, these are not the coordination skills of somebody about to go wildly skate through the embassy. Assange has trouble keeping his balance even while standing on the board. Mysteriously, Assange's meetings with doctors, lawyers, and visitors, his surveillance always seemed to have worked flawlessly, and yet the same sophisticated technology has failed to capture any of the misconduct he is accused of. No photographs or audio-video footage of the alleged soccer games, none of the alleged torture of his cat, none of the alleged smearing of the of toilet walls with excrement. Nevertheless, these allegations are relentlessly repeated and obediently disseminated by the press until they have taken roots in the minds of the public. As a result, when people hear the name Assange, they no longer think of war crimes and corruption he exposed, but only of tragic comic loser they can treat with pity, ridicule, or disdain. The media hype that was unleashed by the Swedish authorities in August of 2010 and which was then fueled and escalated for years, especially by the British and American press, now reaches its repulsive finale. Like bloodhounds on a wounded animal, his fellow journalists are now pouncing on Assange, attracted by the lumps of slander thrown their way and meeting out vicious blows without the slightest sense of human dignity or professional honor. Rarely do these journalists seem to pause and reflect on who is tossing scoops to them like bloody pieces of meat, and what murky interests they are being instrumentalized for. A particularly telling example is published in the Daily Mail on 12 April of 2019. It was the day after Assange's expulsion and arrest by British police, a key moment for the shaping of public opinion. Minister Duncan, who had been in charge of coordinating Oper Operation Pelican, proudly notes in his diary that he had put the journalist in touch with the Ecuadorian ambassador thus giving the Daily Mail their scoop about the fetid Assange hovel. Indeed, the very headline announces hair-raising revelations. Assange inside his fetid lair revealed the squalid horror that drove embassy staff to finally kick him out. And further on, exclusive photos of Assange's dirty protest have been revealed. He left soiled underpants in the toilet in the Ecuadorian embassy in a fit of rage. On other occasions, he left excrement smeared across the wall and ignored warnings not to leave half-eaten meals in the kitchen. The photos flanking the article, however, show an empty used plate, as well as three used cups in the sink, no trace of half-eaten meals, and they show a perfectly clean toilet, no soiled underpants to be seen, let alone excrement. This is not only how tabloid journalism works, but also and this is one of the most important insights of my professional life, how human perception works in general. Reading the announcement of something repulsive is enough to trigger our feelings of disgust. We add the dirty details in our mind because that is what the text suggests to us. Thus a photo of a spotless toilet becomes the image of a crime scene where something terrible has happened. As long as we only skim through the article, most of us won't notice the deception and Duncan himself notes in his diary, the pictures of his living conditions were beyond repulsive. 
the headline is enough for us to know once again the goal of focusing our attention on Assange's personality and supposed weaknesses has been achieved. In consequence, Julian Assange is all we are discussing. Some of us despise him, others defend him. This diversity of opinion is just fine with governments. Freedom of expression is guaranteed after all, at least so long as we discuss only what is served up to us in the headlines. Only when we start choosing for ourselves what we want to discuss and stray into subject areas that the powerful have declared off-limits, only then does our dissent become a conspiracy theory and our thirst for knowledge criminal espionage. Admittedly, admittedly, sorry. in addition to the aforementioned trivia, there are also accusations that seem to be of a more serious character, at least at first glance. They are repeated almost word for word in all three official letters I received from the Ecuadorian government. First, the Ecuadorian government keeps referring to a scene from the 58th minute of Laura Poitras' documentary film Risk. According to the authorities, this scene shows Assange attempting to use his laptop in order to break into the embassy's computer system and manipulate the surveillance cameras. Now, let us stop and consider for a moment how likely it is that Assange would really allow himself to be filled by a documentary team while hacking the Ecuadorian computer system. Moreover, the content of the scene is inconsistent with the allegations made by the government. Assange is shown looking at a desktop screen that is placed on the floor and not his own laptop, which was visible in another scene a few minutes earlier. According to several separate and unrelated witness testimonies, the scene in question was recorded in 2012, shortly after Assange's arrival at the embassy and shows him looking at the embassy's official surveillance camera monitor in a room that was being shared by Assange and the security personnel. It can therefore be concluded that the Ecuadorian government's hacking allegations against Assange are based on an obvious and arguably intentional misinterpretation of the relevant footage, which from a legal perspective may well amount to defamation, if not false accusation. Equally unconvincing is the official interpretation of another incident that allegedly took place on 27 December of 2018. According to the Ecuadorian government's official reply to my office of 26 July 2019, during a conversation with a new ambassador, Assange reportedly said, we are on, we are on alert here with hidden activation me measures. We have our finger on the button. We are ready to press it. Several buttons actually. The decision to press the button, it will depend on whether we believe that some threats made against me are real, as translated from the Spanish. From these sentences, the Ecuadorian government constructs another reason for Assange's expulsion from the embassy. The aforementioned threat, sorry, the aforementioned threat is of significant concern to the Ecuadorian state, as it could even allude to a terrorist attack or other violent event that could endanger the lives of officials and third parties in the embassy building. While this interpretation may be reasonable in a different context, in the present case it is obviously it obviously defies common sense. Assange has never been a weapons fanatic, nor has he ever maintained contacts with or expressed sympathies towards terrorist groups or otherwise shown a tendency to or inclination to violent crime. Given Assange's background and work for WikiLeaks, 
the only buttons he could reasonably be referring to are the keys of a computer keyboard. In any case, the alleged statement most likely should be interpreted in a figurative sense as referring to the possible release of leaks. Con conversely, it can be concluded with certainty that Assange could have planned the detonation of a bomb, as the Ecuadorian government wanted the world to believe. If the government had even remotely believed that it, in this nonsense, it would not have waited another four months before expelling Assange. Against this background, the Ecuadorian government's adherence to the claim of a terrorist threat can only be seen as ludicrous. Apart from hacking and terrorism, the Ecuadorian government also accuses Assange of interference with the internal affairs of other states. In the view of the authorities, Assange has, through his political statements, disturbed the public peace and violated the international agreements of non-intervention. The problem with these accusations is that from a legal perspective, the principle of non-intervention applies only between sovereign states and cannot be violated by asylum seekers and other private individuals. Clearly, when Assange com communicated publicly about the 2016 presidential elections in the United States about the Catalan secessionist movement in the 2017 and many other political issues, he did not do so in the name or on behalf of the Ecuadorian embassy, but in his professional capacity as a publicist, journalist, and political commentator. He simply continued to do his work in line with his right to freedom of expression and press freedom. The same work, of course, that had subjected him to political persecution worldwide and which the previous Ecuadorian government had considered deserving of diplomatic protection. To turn Assange's journalistic activities, which had been the justification for his asylum, into a justification for his expulsion is not only contrary to good faith, but incompatible with international human rights law. Defamation, humiliation, and demonization are key elements of psychological torture. Their purpose is not only to destroy the victim's self-esteem, sense of justice, and trust in the authorities, but also to, de to deprive them of social support within the family, the community, and the broader public, and to trivialize their mistreatment or make it appear morally justified. As with the mobbing victims in their private environment, the resulting feelings of isolation, shame, and hopelessness can push torture victims into nervous breakdowns or cardiovascular collapse, or even to suicide. Mobbing is not a trifle. It is a collective, cumulative form of cruelty. Nor is it, is it torture light. It is torture. The United States manifests as the mastermind. The United States, as of 16 October 2018, as the latest, question it, it is no longer whether Assange will be expelled from the Ecuadorian embassy, but only when. On that, on that day, Lenin Marino receives mail from the U.S. House Committee of Foreign Affairs. The letter from the House of Representatives makes clear what course of action is expected in the Assange case. Many of us in the United States Congress are eager to move forward in collaborating with your government on a wide array of issues, from economic cooperation to counter-narcotics assistance to the possible return of the United States Agency for International Development mission to Ecuador.
However, in order to advance the, on these crucial matters, we must first resolve a significant challenge created by your predecessor, Raphael Correa, the status of Julian Assange. The letter states that Mr. Assange remains a dangerous criminal and a threat to global security, and he should be brought to justice. Therefore, the envisioned economic cooperation is made contingent on Ecuador taking a significant step. We are hopeful about developing warmer relations with your government, but feel it will be very difficult for the United States to advance our bilateral relationship until Mr. Assange is handed over to the proper authorities. On 11 December 2018, four senators and two members of Congress follow up in a letter to Secretary Mike Pompeo, reference, referring to Assange's stay at the embassy and stressing that it is imperative that his situation be resolved swiftly. These two letters can be said to formalize the U.S. demand that Ecuador terminate Assange's asylum. Incidentally, in the coming months, the International Monetary Fund will have to decide on loans urgently needed by the Ecuadorian government in the amount of $4.2 billion. In the IMF, the United States enjoys veto power and is known to use it very effectively to further its own interests. The resulting pressure on the Moreno government to give in and to surrender Assange is enormous, triggering feverish efforts to find reasons that could justify this step in the eyes of the broader public. In any case, by the time I expressed my alarm at Assange's mistreatment and the summary expulsion from the embassy, the Ecuadorian government as well as was well prepared. Their lengthy responses to my official letters of 18th April, 28 May, and 2 October meticulously listed Assange's violations of the special protocol and kept repeating the same accusations of interference in the eternal affairs of other states and of leveling terrorist threats against embassy officials. While each point indicates the inevitable, sorry, the inevitability of Assange's expulsion, None of them withstands closer scrutiny. I do need a break. So at 57 minutes here in the, the podcast, I am going to take a quick uh, drink break and then return to the reading of this particular section. Um, when it ends, I'll open the phones and we can talk. point indicates the inevitability of Assange's expulsion. None of them withstands closer scrutiny. The Ecuadorian government went as far as professing concern that Assange's health could worsen if he continued to stay at the embassy. In my follow-up letter of 2 October 2019, I rebuked this argument as implausible. It is difficult to see how a genuine concern for Mr. Assange's health and liberty could justify expelling him from the Ecuadorian embassy against his will without any form of due process and foreseeably exposing him to a real risk of lifelong arbitrary imprisonment in the United States marked by cruel 
inhuman or degrading treatment or even torture. Because that is exactly what happened on that morning of 11 April 2019. Of course, there may be situations in which persons can be lawfully deprived of their asylum. But any such decision must be necessarily be taken in a due process proceeding, subject to the rule of law, including the right to be heard, the right to legal counsel, and the right to appeal to a judicial body. Assange does not get the benefit of any of these rights. One morning, the Ecuadorian ambassador simply informs him that both his citizenship and his asylum have been revoked and asks him to leave the embassy within the hour. When Assange refuses, British police are invited to enter the embassy and arrest him there. This is a clear breach not only of Ecuadorian constitutional law, which prohibits the extradition of Ecuadorian nationals, but also of fundamental procedural guarantees and of the absolute prohibition of refoulement under inter international law. But the legal intricacies of Assange's case, expulsion, and arrest do not seem to be of interest to anyone. Therein lies the advantage of unexpected moves. The public is caught off guard, and by the time the media is up to speed, facts have already been established on the ground, and the focus has moved on. For years, Assange feared the United States would demand his extradition as soon as he were to set out foot outside the embassy, and for years he has been ridiculed as paranoid and unreasonable for it. But on the day of his expulsion from the embassy, Assange's worst nightmare comes true. The United States unseals its secret indictment against him and formally requests his extradition from the United Kingdom. Thus, in terminating Assange's asylum, the Ecuadorian government knowingly exposes him to the very risk they had referred to seven years earlier as the justification for his diplomatic asylum. In the reply to my office, 18 June of 2019, the Ecuadorian government claims to have known, sorry, the Ecuadorian government claims to not have known anything of the impeding U.S. extradition request. Ecuador was never officially informed of any procedure of extradition or open court case against Mr. Assange outside British or Swedish jurisdiction. Forgotten are the constructive discussions with Vice President Pence. Forgotten the letter from the U.S. Congress forgotten the reasons why Ecuador had granted Assange diplomatic asylum in the first place. After six years and ten months in the Ecuadorian embassy, Assange is stripped of both his Ecuadorian citizenship and his diplomatic asylum, arrested by British police, brought before a British judge, summarily convicted of a criminal offense, and isolated in a high-security prison to await sentencing and the beginning of extradition proceedings initiated by the United States. Assange's personal belongings, including professional documents and computers, remain in the Ecuadorian embassy. They are not handed over to his lawyers or to his family or to the British authorities, but straight to the United States, reportedly in response to a request for mutual legal assistance from the United States Department of Justice. Just as with his luggage at Stockholm Air Airport in 2010, Assange's property is confiscated without due process of law. Should any proof be needed to demonstrate who has really been pulling the strings in the Assange case across all these years and boundaries, here it is. And this is the trial of Julian Assange, a story of persecution. We've completed chapter 8.
and this is written by uh, UN Special Rapporteur Nils Meltzer. This is an official account. Okay, would anybody like to call in and discuss any of the any of the things that were read during this this particular reading? I, for one, am exceptionally disappointed that even though the Trump administration was boosted and did so benefit from WikiLeaks cables as a journalistic publisher, um, that they would not in any way defend Julian, but leave him to the devices of persecution during this time. They betrayed him. Mike Pompeo betrayed him. Mike Pence betrayed him. And they furthered the narrative that he was a bad guy, that he was a dirty person, a dirty birdie. And I'm disappointed. I really am. So I can I get to be disappointed in the United States government. They're my they're my government. I get to be disappointed in them. And I can say that out loud. So I guess this is my wedge right now. If I have an opportunity to advocate for press freedom, which I'm doing, um, in doing it now before we move into the, you know, guaranteed red wave of 2022, uh, now is the time to ask for justice. It is time to ask for what you need, want, and require since Trump's officials and his political machining has come under the same grinding wheels of misappropriated justice as Julian Assange. They thought it would be applied to other people, but not to them. And now it is squarely upon them. It is upon small people. It is upon people who conducted a, a an incursive raid on, on the Capitol, okay? In which only one of their own really died. But it is repeatedly misconstrued by public media controlled by democratic operatives and by some of the deep state that you know the the United States people shall not ever do this uh, and not expect you know you know overt over prosecution indefinite pretrial defense this is against our constitution it is against the 6th amendment it is against human rights. It is against my personal conscience. It is against everything that I understand to be, you know, above the law, like above board in the way that the rule of law is carried out. They have the rule of law in their mouths, but they do not perform to the rule of law in these cases. When they are put to the test, these individual actors of the United States government have defied the rule of law. They have defied the rule of the American people as standard. They have become and are vehicles of the corrupt. There is not one rule for them and a rule for another. There is only one rule of law, and it is to be just. And it is to be just to Julian Assange as a foreign national, which they, they are to retract it. And this shadow shadow piece of foreign government is, is not to be leveraged against the American people by the State Department, by the DNI, 
and and never should have been windowed against the American people to betray us indefinitely. They it should never have been done. But the only defenders we ever had were people like Edward Snowden, Julian Assange, reporters like Glenn Greenwald and the Intercept, who are still around, by the way, but they've been they've been hassled and dethroned and thrown off. Uh, I mean, the Intercept got you know got broken up. They were the ones who were who were delivering as a legitimate publication, and something bad happened to them. You know, the founder who was, you know, raised up on a on a giant pedestal for his his reporting work and their reporting work was suddenly, you know, now he has to live in Brazil and have a life in Brazil because because safety, because different rule of law. Better rule of law possibly, fairer rule of law than than here. And that is that is a travesty. It really makes me feel ashamed. And the demand is there. When you suddenly find that that Steve Bannon and Julian Assange are in the same toilet, dealing with the same corrupt group of people at the Department of Justice and the DNI, I think that there is a real come to Jesus moment. There is something there. There's something something to that. So I really feel like there could be change. But we have to ask for it, and we have to ask for it now. You know, there, there can't be this like half-stepping, like, okay, we're I'm gonna pr- I'm gonna present you with something unsavory, like, you know, we are gonna say out of one side of our mouths, you know, we'll do something about China, and then say, let's elect Mike Lee, who has done nothing but create inroads for China to own U.S. land. So now. Th- if they want our money and they want our votes and they want us to do to give them power now is the time to say here's what the power costs elected officials you know conform to the rule of law yourselves stop leaning on these executive institutions to launder your crappy policies against the freedom of speech and against the natural rights and the constitutional rights of the United States people. Stop defying and, and defecating all over the Sixth Amendment. Allow people to have a speedy trial. Eliminate, you know, indefinite pretrial detention, which is an anathema to human rights everywhere. Everywhere. So, you know, this is a time to really ask or really put it on them. If anybody can hear me out there in the world, I know that, you know, someone will hear it at some point. It's been over an hour. But I'm using my, my call-in platform to do exactly what I would have probably done anyway. Um, and, and regardless of how rare it is or, you know, whether it's common or not common, I'm doing it. So I, I'm, I'm thankful for this platform to be able to say the things that I'm able to say and do the things I'm able to do. So I appreciate your, your listening ears here on The Unsanctioned Citizen. I intend to stay unsanctioned. And... You know, they haven't put me in a cage yet. Maybe bad things have happened. Maybe so. But I'm still here. I'm still here with you talking about this. Thanks for listening. Before you go, hit the subscribe button. Remember that callers are welcome. Subscribers can access Unsanctioned Citizen Podcast Archives at Substack, Automatic, 
iHeartRadio podcasts, and call in. Please stay in touch. We want to hear from you. Visit SheilaMDean.com.